Today's scripture reading is going to be coming from Acts chapter 2. So if you're at home, you can look on in your Bibles or your Bible apps, or if you're here in person with us, you can turn to your worship handout. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 24 and then 33 to 41. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty words, mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up by the God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it is because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now verses thirty three to forty one. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Now I'm going to turn it off to Pastor Barton. As Steve mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are changing the order because I want a longer time of response at the end. And so instead of our pastoral prayer right now, uh, we're going to move that to the end. But I do want us to pray just before we come to the message. So pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the day of Pentecost when you poured out your Spirit. We thank you that we live in the age of the Spirit where every believer enjoys the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who leads us, guides us, enables us to fight against our sin, produces the fruit of the Spirit in us, and empowers us to live for you. We're grateful for the gift of the Spirit, and we pray that this morning we would learn a little bit more about who the Holy Spirit is, and that you would, oh God, you would meet with us, especially towards the end and in our time of response, that you would be pleased to pour out your Spirit wherever anyone is watching this service, whether in person or in homes, that your Spirit would be poured out and we would encounter you in a powerful way. I pray that you would do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, today, of course, we're continuing our Ask Anything sermon series, and this was based on your questions you submitted in summertime, and then you voted on what top, the top 10 questions that you wanted to hear preached on, and today, right near the top of the votes, came questions from you about the Holy Spirit, and really, there were three top main questions that you were asking. Here they are. First, what does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Second, why are certain spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues not considered relevant or active in the Baptist denomination? And finally, 
why does it seem as though there isn't very much talk of the Holy Spirit's help, work, or power? Well, this morning I am praying that this message is going to help clear up some controversy. Uh, I'm praying that this message is also going to enable you to expand, expand some of your views of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. And then in the second half, maybe two-thirds of the message, the whole tone is going to shift. And I can't wait and cannot wait for this last point, the last question that you asked. And what we're going to talk about later, I'm praying that by that point, God is going to stir in each of us a great desire to pray, to call out that God would be pleased to pour out His Spirit on us individually, as a church, within our city, and across our nation. So let's start, shall we? Well, you asked the controversial stuff, so let's deal with the, the controversial stuff first. And then again, the last two-thirds, very different tone. But let's, let's get into the little controversial stuff first. First question you asked is, what does it mean to be baptized by, or you could say, in the Holy Spirit? Now, maybe some of you are thinking, what, what's the controversy involved in here? Uh, maybe you've just become a Christian. You think, I didn't know there was a controversy about this. Well, there is quite a bit of controversy if you don't know what it is. Uh, let me just kind of get you up to speed as to what the controversy is, and then I will try, by God's grace, to show you what I think the Scriptures teach in answer to this question. The controversy began in 1906. A new group of churches began to be formed, which you will recognize the name. Uh, the churches are called Pentecostal churches. And Pentecostal churches also came with a new teaching that had not been heard in the history of the Christian church either about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This whole entire teaching is referred to as second blessing theology. Second blessing theology. Let me explain what that means. It's not hard to understand. Here's the question then, what is second blessing theology? Four quick and easy points to understand it. First of all, it is the belief that there is a second experience of the Holy Spirit called the baptism of the Holy Spirit that occurs, this is the key word, after a person becomes a Christian. Could be much later after a person becomes a Christian. You need a second experience, a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. That's the first point. Here's the second it is the belief that all Christians should seek this second blessing or baptism of the Holy Spirit after they become Christians. It's for every single Christian should seek this second experience, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's something you do after you become a Christian. Here's the third point. The purpose of this baptism in the Spirit or second blessing is for gifting and power in the Christian life. And how do you know if you've got it? How do you know if you have received this baptism of the Spirit and you are gifted, you are now empowered, you, you've received the second blessing? How do you know? Here's the big final fourth point. The evidence that a Christian has been baptized in the Holy Spirit is he or she speaks in tongues. So this is the new theology that came in the beginning of the 20th century. This is where the controversy comes, is this teaching said that every single Christian needs a second experience of the Holy Spirit, a second blessing, and you know you've received this if you speak in tongues, and every single Christian needs it. That's the teaching. 
Now, those who hold to second blessing theology will typically kind of lay out their case by pointing to the disciples and saying things like, the disciples were believers before the day of Pentecost. They were believers in Jesus Christ. Then after, it's when they were already believers that they received the Holy Spirit. In the story we just read, which is the day of Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit. So they're already believers then they received the Holy Spirit. So second blessing teaching argues that this is the pattern throughout the entire book of Acts, and it is the pattern for us today as well. And so if you have been in a a Pentecostal meeting where this has been talked about, as I have many, many times, had many Pentecostal friends, attended many services and meetings, the second blessing preacher will stand up and and the whole message will be something along the lines of this. He'll say, are you lacking power in your Christian life? Do you you want spiritual gifts to serve God? Do you want more of God in your life? Then what you need is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So let's call on God now to ask him to baptize us in the Holy Spirit and you'll know you've received it when you you begin to speak in other tongues. Now, this teaching has, I don't, I don't, I'm not in Pentecostal circles all the time, but it's not held by a lot of modern Pentecostals now. It's what we might call traditional Pentecostal teaching. Many Pentecostals have now moved away from it, but its effect still stands. And the controversies around it still cause a lot of questions uh, and, quite frankly, a lot of grief. I was one of these people who struggled mightily with this because, of course, this appeals to something very real within every Christian. When you're asked the question, do you want more of God in your life? If you're a Christian, what's your answer? Of course I do. Do you want more of God's power in your life to bear witness to him and to serve him? Of course I do. And so, so in my early teen or late teen and kind of early 20 years, this was almost the defining issue for me. Uh, I went to so many charismatic Pentecostal churches and I thought, okay, if that's what I need, if, if, if it's this experience that I need, then God, of course I want it. I read endless books on how do you actually received it? All kinds of people praying, all kinds of meetings. I never received anything like that. And so then what happens is you turn inward and you blame yourself. You say, maybe I just lack faith. Or you begin to turn on God and you begin to say, God, if this is so important, I mean, I've sought you, I've prayed, I've tried to read your scriptures, why would you not give it a lot more easily? Why is this so difficult to receive? So what I want to do here is to save you from any unnecessary grief and hopefully clear up some of this controversy for you. So here's the question now, with that background, if you've been, this is new to you, with that background, here's the question I want us to ponder. It's this, does the Bible teach that all Christians need a second experience of the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Spirit, in order to receive gifting and power in their lives? I probably should have added at the end, and this is evidenced by speaking in tongues. That's the question I want to ponder. So let's start Let me give you a bunch of short points. They're all very short, but I kind of want to give a bunch of ones. Uh, And we'll start where there is no controversy, okay? Every Christian agrees on the first two. Here's the first one. The Old Testament promised a future age when the Messiah, the Christ, would forgive sins and he would also baptize, that word is immerse, baptize or immerse his people in the Spirit. Everybody agrees on that. That was the great promises of the Old Testament Everybody also agrees on the second point. The second point is this. These Old Testament promises were fulfilled 
on the day of Pentecost, the story we just read in Acts chapter 2. No debate about this. On the day of Pentecost, God gave his spirit, poured out his spirit, and uh, Peter stood before the crowd. He declared that all that was going on was fulfillment of all those prophecies in the Old Testament, and this is the beginning of the new age of the spirit. This is now where I am going to divert from second blessing theology, okay? So I'm just laying all my cards on the table so you know where I'm going. Here's the third thing I want to say in answer to our question, that the gift or the baptism of the Spirit describes a blessing received, here's the key word for me, at the beginning of the Christian life, when you become a Christian, not at a later point, and is given to all who believe, not just to a few. So I'm kind of giving, this is the, other than Pentecostals, this is the kind of Christian position on it, and I hold to it. That when you become a Christian, you receive the gift, and you are baptized into the Holy Spirit, and and this is not something you receive at a later point, it's synonymous with becoming a Christian. Now, maybe you're going to say, okay, but what about the disciples? As I said earlier, the disciples were believers, and then they received the Spirit after they became believers. So, Isn't that the pattern for us? This is what we said earlier. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 2. Let's look at Peter's sermon and see exactly what Peter says. Uh, You remember, at the end of the sermon, uh, Peter ends his sermon this way. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you repent, you'll receive two things, forgiveness and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, not just for you though, it's also for your children. And look at this is actually you. If you're a Christian, you are in this verse. And all who are far off. In other words, anyone who believes in Jesus down through the ages. So we read, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So follow this now. On the day of Pentecost, there were two main groups of people. There was the 120 disciples who were praying in the upper room before the Spirit fell. Among them was Peter. Then the Spirit falls. Peter preaches his sermon. And then we read that 3,000 people become Christians that day. Wow, that's a sermon. May the Lord do that again in our day and time. Please, Lord. 120, that's one group. 3,000, that's the second group. Okay, now we're clear on that. There's a key difference between these two groups. What's the key difference? The 120 were most certainly believers in Jesus Christ before the day of Pentecost. And they received the Spirit then after they believed. But is that the case with the 3,000? No. The 3,000 were unbelievers at the beginning of the day of Pentecost, and by the end of the day, after they'd heard Peter's sermon, they became believers, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. So here's the big question. Who is the pattern for us? Is the pattern for us today the 120, or is the pattern for us the 3,000? Answer, the 3,000, not the 120. That should be very clear because, listen, the only reason the 120 received the Holy Spirit after they believed is because the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out. They could not have received the Holy Spirit before this. The 120 lived in what we might call the overlap period. Before the Holy Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2, they lived before this time, as with all the other Old Testament saints. None of them received the Spirit like the 3,000 did. 
all the Old Testament saints, the Holy Spirit would empower them in different ways. He would come upon them for certain tasks, but the Holy Spirit was not poured out until the day of Pentecost. So that 120 were most certainly believers before, but they lived in the overlap time. The overlap time where you could have been a believer without the Spirit, or without the Spirit being poured out yet, or, and then he could have been poured out after, not so for the 3,000. Once the day of Pentecost comes, nobody else can go back in time now where you can live in the overlap time. For us today, the Holy Spirit has already been poured out. So the pattern for us then is the 3,000. And what's the pattern? You just, we just read it. You repent of your sins and you get two gifts. Gift number one, forgiveness of your sins. Gift number two, you get the gift or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Peter promises that this promise of forgiveness and the Spirit are for all future generations as well. So to recap, the gift or the baptism of the Spirit describes a blessing that is received at the beginning of the Christian life, not at a later point, and is given to all who believe, not just to a few. Here's the next little point I want to make. That was the longest one of the little points. Here's a very short one. Other New Testament passages confirm that baptism in the Spirit occurs when a person becomes a Christian. One of the easiest examples of this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is appealing to the Christians in Corinth. They've got a lot of disunity. He wants to call them to unity. When he wants to call them to unity, what does he talk about? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's what he writes. For in one Spirit we were all baptized, not some of us, every single one of us, every believer, we've all been baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul's whole theology of unity is, guys, what, the reason why we should have unity in the church is because every single one of us as believers have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. There's not some who've been baptized and some who have not. No, Paul's saying we should be unified because every single one of us, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we have all been baptized into this one spirit. But what about the issue of tongues? Here's my next short point. Although some spoke in tongues when they received the baptism of the spirit, this is not the normative pattern even in the book of Acts. And the easiest example without going through the whole book of Acts is right here, the 120 spoken tongues but we do not read that the 3,000 spoke in tongues. So it's not a normative pattern. It's not a necessarily an evidence that you've been baptized in the Spirit. And here's the final thing to say. Nowhere in the New Testament letters are Christians exhorted to seek after a second blessing in the sense of which we are talking about. Now, let me be really clear. We are to seek after not just a second blessing, but a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, a tenth, in other words, we're to always be seeking God for his power and his blessing in our lives. We want lots of that, but this, it's, we should not be thinking of, of this as if there's the ordinary unempowered Christians here, and there's one major experience, the second experience, and then we're all up into this category. That's not the way the New Testament frames it. The New Testament frames it as keep seeking God, seek his power. You need this over and over again. It's what we call the filling of the Spirit. You need continually to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So to summarize, I think John Stott puts this well. This is a little bit wordy, but it covers all the bases. So here's what John Stott writes. The gift of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit are the same. They describe an initial blessing received at the beginning of the Christian life, not a subsequent one received sometime later. 
and therefore a universal blessing. It's given to all Christians, not an esoteric one that is enjoyed only by some. The big problem with the traditional Pentecostal view on the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that it creates two classes of Christians. You've got the ordinary, unempowered Christians down here who have not yet received this second blessing, and then you've got the empowered, baptized, Holy Spirit-filled Christians up here. But listen, nowhere in the New Testament do we find two classes of Christians. There is only one class of Christians. And if you've received Christ, you are in Christ. You have the Spirit. You're in the one body. You have the fullness of the Spirit. Yes, you need continual relationship with God and continual empowering and all those kind of things. But there's not two classes of Christians in the New Testament. There's only one class, and that's those who are fully a part of Christ's body, baptized by the Holy Spirit. So, I hope that clears up controversy. Again, uh, gratefully in my view, uh, I know many Pentecostal preachers who they no longer hold to the traditional view anymore either. I think it's becoming lost over time as people are learning the Scriptures, um, but that's, that's just my kind of take on it. I'm sure maybe I've just stirred up more controversy. I don't know. We've cleared up some. We've stirred up more. You asked the questions. I did my best to answer. That's the first one. All right? You can email me. I'll try to get back to you within the next year. All right, let's come to the second question then. Here's your second question. Why are certain spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues not considered relevant or active in the Baptist denomination? All right, we're picking on Baptists today, are we? All right, well, let me tell you. Here's the short answer. The reason is because historically, listen, all Christians, including Baptists, of which one part, have held to a view called cessationism. Cessationism. What is that? Let me define it for you. Cessationism is the belief that the spiritual gifts such as, certain spiritual gifts, such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, and the gift of healing, that is people who have this gift to heal, ceased after the days of the apostles. Those kind of bigger gifts like speaking in tongues, prophecy, and people, not that God doesn't heal, but just specific people don't have the gift of healing, that those were for a specific time. The argument of cessationism is that these gifts originated and they were part of the early church in order to kind of um, show evidence of the gospel, but once the Bible was completed, once the apostolic age end, then these gifts ceased. Now, this is actually something you really need to wrestle with no matter what your view is. Because the fact of the matter is, they did cease. When you read through the history of the church, it is a rare moment when you can find anything resembling what we think of today as far as prophecy, speaking in tongues, uh, and, and those types of things. You read 2,000 years of church history, generally speaking, you can almost say without exception, those gifts do not appear in the historical record. Now, you've got to wrestle with that because if Christians who are led by the Spirit, just like you and I, empowered by the Spirit, just like you and I, if, if they've not had this for 1,900 years, you've got to ask why that's the case. Now, it might be the case, you might argue, that Christians just neglected this part of the Scriptures and so it was lost for 1,900 years. That's a possible argument. But I just think you've got to be careful before you throw 1,900 years of spirit-filled, spirit-led teachers, men and women, under the bus. Be very careful before you do that. In our day, though, it seems interesting to me 
that the, those who hold to cessationism seem to be on the decline. There's less and less people who hold that position, is what I'm trying to say. In fact, most, I think, pastors, teachers, scholars I talk to, I'm not going to put any numbers on this, I'm just going to say it seems to be, to me, increasing, no longer hold to cessationism. Speaking personally, I follow uh, some Baptist scholars like D.A. Carson, if some of you guys know his name, who agree that cessationism is not the correct view. So in other words, I do not hold to cessationism. However, I would agree with D.A. Carson that there's significant concerns about how people define them. These things like tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, significant concerns about how people define them and then also how they practice them. So I, I'm always trying to learn, I'm trying to understand, so I don't hold the cessationist view, but in my view right now, I'd say I have a lot more questions than I have answers, and I'm open but cautious. That's, that's where I'm at, just speaking very personally. But with that being said, here's the main thing I want to say. <laughs> This issue has caused way too much division amongst Christians in the last, let's say, 30 years, especially in the 90s, and especially going back, if you want to go back to the early days of Pentecostalism. But what I want to draw our attention to to wrap up this question is how Paul handles this in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. 12 to 14 in 1 Corinthians are three chapters where Paul talks about tongues and prophecy over and over again. It's the giant chapters on this. He brings it up because the Corinthians are actually making too big of a deal about speaking in tongues, and so he's trying to bring things down a little bit. But here's the big point. Everybody listen on this. Paul puts something at the very center of his discussion. And what Paul puts at the center is what I long to see more at the center of all these types of discussions. And I must say, I am so pleased, I think in the last 10 to 20 years, this is increasingly the case. Some of my good friends are charismatic pastors. They are Pentecostal pastors. And I'd say we have a brotherhood with one another. There's not those divisions where we scorn one another or something like that anymore. Because we want to keep at the center what Paul keeps at the center. So what is the center between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14? 1 Corinthians 13. Does anybody know what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about? You've heard it at weddings many times. It's the great chapter on love. Love is patient. Love is kind. You know the chapter. You've heard it. But you've heard it at weddings, but do you know, within direct context, it's fine to apply it everywhere else, but within direct context, Paul is putting this into the heart of his discussion on controversy over spiritual gifts because this is what he wants all the Christians in Corinth to keep at the very center, and that is my plea and my heart for us as a church too. All right, let's discuss these things. Let's even debate these things, but at the very center of our church, let's make sure it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All right. Have we had enough controversy yet? Are we ready for some other stuff? Controversy is fun, but not forever. Let me come to our final question and completely change gears. Here's the question. Why does it seem as though there isn't very much talk of the Holy Spirit's help, work, or power? Now, I really try to read this so I make sure I understand the question, and I have more questions about your question. I don't know if you're saying that like in our church or if this is like in Christianity in general, I don't know the context in which you're trying to ask that. But I confess, when I read that question, I was surprised. Because I feel like I am always hearing Christians in our church and in other churches praying for the Spirit's help 
and power. I feel like here, our preaching and teaching is filled with references always talking about God does this by His Spirit. We did a seven-part series on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was all through the adoption series a while ago. So that's why I was kind of like, okay, what what are they trying to mean by this question? So I couldn't help but wonder if those of you who asked this question, could be wrong on this, but I'm just throwing this out there. Those of you who asked this question come more from the Pentecostal charismatic background. And what you really mean by this question is, why don't we hear more about tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, and the kind of spectacular miracles that the Holy Spirit works. I thought maybe that's where this question is actually coming from. Now hear me, I don't want to be defensive on this. I I, I want to learn, I want to grow in the Spirit. I never want to grieve the Spirit. In fact, at the end, I'm going to make where this is all going is a giant call for God to pour out His Spirit upon us in mighty ways again. But what I thought I could do to tackle this, maybe this would cover everybody, I don't know. I thought what would be most helpful right now is to do just a quick run-through of some of the works that the Holy Spirit does that are not controversial, we've dealt with enough controversial, but that are also not necessarily the big spectacular because you know what, sometimes people say, you gotta let the Holy Spirit out of the box and what they mean by that is you gotta let them do things like words of knowledge and prophecy. But on the flip side, I feel like so many people I know, when they think of the Holy Spirit, that's all they think of is things like the miraculous, the spectacular, the tongues and prophecy and I wanna say, you put the Holy Spirit into this box when his works are so much more broad. And so what I wanna do now is to try and just show you some of the works of the Spirit so you can see that he is everywhere He is always at work and maybe in areas you've never thought of. And then through this grid, you can evaluate whether we talk enough about the Spirit's power and work. All right? So a couple of roles of the Holy Spirit. Let's kind of just rip through these. First, here's one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. Here's the verse. John 16, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now look, he is going to do something, all this. He's going to glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So notice, one of the major roles of the Holy Spirit is to exalt and lift up Jesus Christ. So then, this changes everything. Now, do you want to see where the Holy Spirit is at work? Look for anywhere where you see a Christian or you see a church or a group of churches, wherever you see Jesus Christ being exalted for who he is as the incarnate Son of God, for what he has done for us through his life, his death, his resurrection, wherever there's great hope in his second coming, All of that, wherever you see Christians delighting in that, worshiping Jesus, saying you're worthy, Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit at work. Does that change how you view the word Spirit's work now? Wherever you are encountering that, that's the Holy Spirit at work. Here's the second thing. The Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers. Here's one of the key verses. Jesus says he will convict the world, he the Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I mean, just think of all the baptism stories that we've heard over these last few years, some amazing stories, and every single one of them talks about the person's, how they see their sin, they see their need for Jesus Christ to save them. Listen, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's, yeah, that's not like a a dramatic healing or something. It's even more dramatic when God, by his Holy Spirit, causes a dead, spiritually dead person to be alive That's actually more spectacular than any healing you will ever encounter. 
I feel like I'm always hearing Christians praying that the Holy Spirit would work in some unbeliever friend, family life, uh, open their eyes for their need for Jesus, Spirit of God, open their heart to see their sin, their need for Christ. I just got to be honest. I feel like I hear Christians praying that all the time. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just me. I'll leave it up to you to decide. Here's another thing the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit shapes believers to be like Jesus. In the first place, the Holy Spirit helps us on the negative side to fight against our sin. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And again, I've prayed with so many people over the years. People coming and saying, I'm struggling with this sin or that sin. And what they're praying is, God, save me. Free me from temptation. Deliver me from this. They're They're praying for the Spirit's work in their heart. So, Again, I feel like I'm hearing this everywhere about how to fight sin. And then on the positive side, it's not just the negative. He doesn't just help us to kill our sin. He also produces positive fruit in our lives. As we read in Galatians chapter 5, the famous verse, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So do you want to see where the Holy Spirit has worked? Do you want to, if you had to sit back and say, where's the Holy Spirit at work? Don't always just be looking for giant, spectacular things. This is, this is not really spectacular stuff. But if you see a husband and wife being a little bit more patient with one another, that's the Holy Spirit at work. If you're seeing a little bit more joy in your own life and what God is doing in this world or in your life, that is the Holy Spirit. All this maybe is unspectacular, but just think of all the areas where the Holy Spirit is at work here. Then fourth, The Holy Spirit also empowers the preaching of the gospel. As the famous verse in Acts 1 verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And again, maybe it's just me, but right across all denominations, across all churches, I am always hearing people praying for the power of the Spirit on the preaching of the gospel. And here at Central, I must say, in my opinion, you do so well. Do you know how many emails and comments I get? People say, I'm praying for this Sunday. I'm praying for the Spirit to use the Word this Sunday. That's people praying for the work of the Holy Spirit in our church. Then fifth, the Holy Spirit also just leads us. When the church leaders in Acts chapter 15 had to make a very difficult decision, they prayed for wisdom in making the decision. And in Acts 15, 28, we read that this decision, quote, seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So again, that's not very spectacular. I mean, imagine, they're having a meeting. This is like a board meeting, and they're praying before the meeting. This this is what's happening here. But it's the Holy Spirit working in these unspectacular ways, leading them to make the decision they needed to make. So let me say this. (laughs) I have sat in so many meetings, okay? I've sat in committee meetings, staff meetings, executive meetings, board meetings, staff meetings, like endless amount of meetings. Someday I'm going to be happy to never sit in another meeting again. But I must also tell you, I can hardly think of one meeting that has not started with a prayer for the Spirit to give us wisdom and typically ended with a prayer saying, thank you, God, for enabling us to think through all the things we had to think through today. So again, maybe this is just me, but I feel like we're talking and praying all the time about the Spirit's work. Now, we could keep looking at all kinds of, other, of the Spirit's work for another hour. That's certainly not exhaustive. But I hope that does for you at least is to say, okay, 
open up your mind to all the Spirit's work and all he does. But there's one last thing that he does where I want to take everything to conclude this mess, this sermon this morning, and Lord willing, God's going to do some great things. Here's the final thing the Holy Spirit does in the big picture. The Holy Spirit manifests God's presence to his people. You know what I mean by that? Think of it this way. Whenever you experience God in any way, that is the Holy Spirit. Have you ever in your life been in a church service where you felt like, man, I feel like I encountered God today? Have you ever had that? I think every Christian would say yes. That is the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been reading the Bible and you felt like a verse just spoke right into your heart and you felt led to go do something? That is the Holy Spirit. Have you ever just been discontented with your spiritual life and you thought, Lord, I want more of you. I want a deeper hunger for you. And, and you feel more inspired thinking, okay, I'm going to be more committed to the Lord. That is the Holy Spirit. Anytime God, you sense God's presence, God's leading, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I long for more of the Spirit's presence in my life. I don't know about you, may I'll just speak for myself. My own heart can become cold so quickly. I feel like in the mornings, every morning, I stir it up with prayer and with the word. I feel like I'm, I'm making like a, a campfire, uh, uh, so to speak, and my heart is warming up, and I'm, okay, Lord, today I'm serving you, I'm worshiping you, but living in this world, it's like trying to light a campfire in the prairies in wintertime. The cold just comes in from everywhere. You're always having to stoke it. There's so many forces coming in. It's so easy for my own heart to just degenerate into formalism. And I'm like, Lord, I don't want my prayers to just be formal. I want a heart that loves you. I want a heart that, that leaps towards prayer rather than a heart that's like, okay, I guess I should pray today. I want a heart that is engaged more with you, Jesus. So easily. I can just lose a sense of his glory so easily. It's like I forget that God even exists at times. Why does all this happen? We live in a world under the power of the prince of the air. We live in a world system. We cannot see. It's only by faith right now. We are in a fight. So all that's normal. It's not abnormal to experience it. But I don't know if you're anything like me. What I want above all else is for more of the Lord's work in my life by his spirit. I want him to awaken me from sleep. I want him to awaken put more fire into me to serve him, more equip me more to serve him. Does, do any of you have that, or is this just me? Okay, so a few people. What I long for is a great outpouring of God's Spirit. I mean on, on a personal level, but then I mean like on a national level. This is what we call revival. When God pours out his Spirit in power like that, everything changes Sleepy Christians are awakened. Sleepy churches are awakened. If you know any of your history of revivals, entire nations have been changed when God pours out his spirit upon them. I could tell you endless stories from history, but I thought this morning I want to camp out on one example. And I like this example, first of all, because it's modern. And I also like it because of the ethnicity of the people whom God poured out his spirit upon. I want to talk to you about the history of South Korea. And I say the ethnicity because, as you know, Asian people are not typically, they're not Italians, right? So if God poured, you know, Italians, you could be like, I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit or if that's just Italians. They're just so loud and boisterous and excited, and right? They express themselves so 
boisterously. Asian people not typically like that, right? Much more reserved. And yet listen to this story of the history of revival in the nation of South Korea, which began when it was actually just one nation of Korea. Here's the background. In 1900, 1% of Korea was Christian. 1%. Today, almost 30% of South Korea is Christian, and we don't even know what's going on in the north. What happened that from 1900 to today, it jumped to 30%. Not only that, listen to this, South Korea is only a little bit larger than Canada in terms of population, and yet South Korea sends out more missionaries than any other country in the world except for the much larger United States. That's incredible. What is going on in South Korea? What happened in South Korea that so much changed? Answer, the Holy Spirit came in power. Here's the story from first-hand accounts. In 1905, there was a lot of friction, a lot of interpersonal conflict going on amongst the missionaries in Korea and the uh, national uh, Korean people. A lot of friction, a lot of controversy. Remember, it's only like 1% Christian, so this small church is kind of getting eaten up from within through all these interpersonal conflicts. Some of the men decided, hey, we need to get away and and have like kind of just a men's conference just to repent of our sins, study the Bible, and seek God's face in prayer. And so they went to a city called Pyongyang, and they started the Pyongyang Conference, and it was just a men's conference like we have today, men's conferences. Dr. William Blair, one of the missionaries who was present there, writes this about the very first evening when they all arrived. It was a Monday. This conference was supposed to go for the week. On Monday night, he writes, quote, that night it was very different. Each felt as he entered the church that the room was full of God's presence. And all over, men began to pray and to seek God just as any normal prayer meeting might begin. But as the prayers continued, the men's hearts began to grow heavy heavy over their sins, heavy over what was going on in their small churches. And everywhere, these Again, Asian men begin to openly weep over their sins. Dr. Lee, another man who was there, writes the following. Man after man would arise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor, beat the floor with his fists in agony of conviction. My own cook tried to make a confession broke down in the midst of it, and cried to me across the room, Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? And then threw himself to the floor and wept and wept and almost screamed in agony. Sometimes after a confession, the whole audience would break out an audible prayer. Have you ever been with Koreans? They all pray out loud together. It's a powerful thing. And the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. Then Dr. Lee tells how the evening progresses, and he gets personally involved in what happens. Here's what he writes. We were aware that bad feelings existed between several of our church leaders, especially between a Mr. Kang and a Mr. Kim. Mr. Kang confessed his hatred for Mr. Kim on Monday night in front of everybody, but Mr. Kim was silent. At our noon prayer meeting on Tuesday, several of us agreed to pray for Mr. Kim. 
As the meeting progressed, I could see Mr. Kim sitting with the elders behind the pulpit with his head down. Bowing where I sat, I asked God to help him, and looking up, I saw him coming forward. Holding to the pulpit, he made his confession. He said, I have been guilty of fighting against God. I am an elder, a pastor in the church, and I have been guilty of hating not only Mr. Kang, but Dr. Lee, the guy who's writing this. Dr. Lee then writes, I never had a greater surprise in my life. It seems that I had said something to him one day which had given offense and he had not been able to forgive me. Turning to me, he said, can you forgive me? Can you pray for me? I stood up and began to pray. Father, and I got no further. It seemed as if the roof was lifted from the building and the Spirit of God came down in a mighty avalanche of power upon us. I fell at Kim's side and wept and prayed as I had never prayed before. My last glimpse of the audience is photographed indelibly on my brain. Some threw themselves full length on the floor. Hundreds stood with arms outstretched toward heaven. Every man forgot every other. Each was face to face with God. I can yet hear the fearful sounds of hundreds of men pleading with God for mercy. Then Dr. Lee writes, The Pyongyang class ended with the meeting Tuesday night. It was supposed to go the whole week. The men returned to their homes in the country, taking the Pentecostal fire with them. Everywhere the story was told, the same spirit flamed forth and spread. So wherever men went, they'd tell this story, and the same thing started happening. Practically every church, not only in North Korea, but throughout the entire peninsula, that is South Korea, received its share of blessing. And there were many results from this. One of the biggest results that always happens in revival is people start making wrongs right. Dr. Lee writes this, all through the city, men were going from house to house, confessing to individuals they had offended, going to neighbors' houses. I'm sorry that I did this wrong. I'm sorry for this offense. They went house to house, returning stolen property. House to house, returning stolen money, not only to Christians, but to non-Christians as well. The whole city was stirred. You can imagine what is going on everywhere. People making things right, confessing, saying sorry. A Chinese merchant was astonished to have a Christian walk in and pay him a large sum of money that he had obtained unjustly years before. I could go on, but the way the story basically goes is that these new Korean Christians, they made a serious effort to present the gospel to the entire Korean nation in just one year. People were going house to house sharing with others, and the church just exploded. Again, from 1% of the population to 30% of the population. The greatest need in our day is not more programs, though we need programs. It is not more money, though we need money to do the things that we need to do. Our greatest need is not more methods or more plans. The greatest need in the church today is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
We need to encounter God and be changed by him. Oh, that God would awaken our own sleepy lives. Oh, that God would awaken our sleepy churches, that the Spirit would come down in power on us, and there would be repentance of our sins which we've held on to for way too long. That in our churches there would be restoration of relationships where Christians have been at odds with one another for so long, just coming together and saying, I don't even know how all that happened, I don't even know how to make it right, but I just want to tell you that I'm sorry. What we need is the Spirit to come down in power that marriages would be restored like that. Husbands and wives would be reconciled to one another. Stolen money, (laughs) apparently a very common thing through the history of the world, starts getting returned all over where there's been unjustness done. Things are made right again. Christians taking practical action to make everything in their lives right again. What we need is the Holy Spirit to be poured out on power that when we say we want to have a prayer meeting, the prayer meeting is not the thing that we go, oh man, can we get maybe 5 or 10% of the church coming? But rather, a prayer meeting would be more well attended than any Sunday morning live stream, any Sunday morning service. For instance, in South Korea every day, Christians at 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. all over the country are praying. They get up and pray. I can't even imagine trying to make that happen here in Canada. And I think we're all the ones who need to realize that we're asleep. None of us can say we're great. Oh, what we need above all is an outpouring of the Spirit that He would be pleased to awaken us, to have mercy upon us, and perhaps raise up many missionaries from our own midst. Friends, I don't know God's purposes in COVID. I'm sure he has many purposes. But here's one I do think is true. What's happened to us is the chair has been pulled out from underneath us. We cannot do so many things. Could it be that one of God's purposes in all of this is to strip everything away from us so we simply go back to that which is most basic, which is seeking the face of God just with our Bibles open, on our knees, whether it be corporately, whether it be by ourselves, the most basic of all basic things in Christianity, just worship of God. Could that be one of his reasons for COVID to say, you, you don't, all your resources, nothing's working for you right now. Just go back to what is basic. I don't know, but I plead that God would be pleased to work in power again in our day and our time. Nations like Ireland, uh, England, Wales, one of the most famous, the United States, countries across Europe have experienced revivals which have changed their entire nations. I think you anticipate as well as I do that our nation is not going in the direction that it pleases our Lord. I fear where that might go as far as terms like things like persecution for believers, where our society is going. I don't know if it's going that way, but here is my prayer that it goes the other way. That God is pleased for the one time in the history of Canada to pour out a nationwide revival. Because we've never seen it. There's been little stories, little pockets here and there. But we as Canadians have never seen a nationwide revival. We don't even, most of us don't even know grandparents who have ever been part of one. Through the history of the church, there's always the older saints who talk about the great days of the revival and what God did. May God be pleased to do that again, maybe for the first time in our nation of Canada.